Hey there, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. We're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we review your favorite animals by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get accurate information. We do. You uh, you emerged from the office after doing your notes giggling earlier, saying that uh, I was really going to like this one because it was funny. Yeah, so. funny and a little bit of soul searching. Oh, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> this is going to be so beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. Before we get into that, though, I do have a really quick follow up from our last episode together. Okay. So last time you and I spoke, like for the podcast, not like in yeah. general, we talked to each other when we're not recording sometimes. No, we, we only talk to each other every other week. We actually can only communicate <laughs> via podcast. Last time we were on mic together, we talked about the Kiwi. Yes. And as part of that conversation, you mentioned, first of all, that people from New Zealand often affectionately refer to themselves as Kiwis, and also that many people go their whole lives without ever seeing a Kiwi, even mm. people who live in New Zealand. And I prompted any kiwi experiences from listeners who were listening and a friend did in fact reply with with a kiwi experience oh good yeah so on twitter a friend alexander replied and said kiwi story from a kiwi once got to hold a one-legged kiwi the other leg was lost to a trap, Aww. unfortunately, the poor thing. Um, Alexander says their feathers are very similar to fur. They're basically the New Zealand rat, <laughs> which I think we kind of touched on a little bit about how their feathers have that kind of shaggy appearance. Yeah. So I guess apparently that is consistent with the texture and how they feel as well, just to get a full sensory portrait of the kiwi. That makes sense. Right? Not, not exactly a design for flying anymore, is it? No, that's purely decorative, baby. <laughs> These are ornamental feathers. I really love hearing that. I, I don't know if we'll ever in our entire lives be in a situation where we could encounter a kiwi up close. So I was really, really excited to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for reaching out to us, friend. Um, that's the only sort of little follow-up that I had. So I am waiting with bated breath to hear the incredible animal you have for us this week. This week, I bring the marine iguana. I'm so excited for yes. this. Scientific name, Amblyrhynchus cristatus. This species was submitted by Vienna Sterling, Dave L., and Katie Walsh. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Some familiar names. I know y'all have been... Uh, Hitting us up online. Mm -hmm, Thank you, sure. friends. I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, National Geographic, and BBC Earth. Oh, yeah. There is... I'm not going to spoil anything, but <laughs> the BBC has done some justice to these friends. Yeah. So first, I want to talk about what they look like. So iguanas are lizards. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be more familiar with other kinds of iguanas, especially if you're in the Americas, probably the green iguana. Which you did an episode on not too long ago. We did. Yep. I say not too long ago. It was probably a long time ago. But <laughs> it was a while back. But you did a you did a segment on green iguanas. Talked about how they fall out of trees when they get too cold. Yes, because that was in the news at the time. <laughs> yep. So these are quadrupedal lizards, mm -hmm. long tails usually. Where this one differs from other iguanas, though, is that it doesn't have a very long snout. It's kind of short and blunt. 
Yeah, like a little snub nose, uh-huh. like a little pug or a bulldog. <laughs> and the coloration is usually a dark gray to black, but mature males can oftentimes be more colorful. Oh, really? Yes. What kind of colors? I've seen all sorts of colors, like really? reds and blues, and it kind of differs based on specific populations. Mm. I'll kind of go into what that's like a little bit. Now that uh, you say that, I think I've seen something like this where they, do they have kind of like red stripes almost? I wouldn't say stripes. It's more blotches. Blotches. Yeah. You know, I love like a stark red and black. Mm-hmm. Like I love that. It looks so like volcanic. Sure. I love that. <laughs> um, they have spikes. No, spines. Wait, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to just go with spines. Sure. Spines yeah. along their back. That kind of goes. Pointy bits. Yeah. Which other iguanas have that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the general what they look like. Now, in terms of size, they're four to five feet long. That's a big boy. Yeah. So we're talking, you know, nose to tip of tail or 1.2 to one and a half meters. And they weigh one to 3.3 pounds or 0.5 to 1.5 kilograms. It's a little lighter than I would have expected for that kind of size. Right. I think a lot of that length is a tail. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you said that length is from the nose to the tip of that's the tail. What, that's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. And they do have a real long tail. Mm-hmm. With those iguanas, it's like a long like whip sort of tail. Though I will say their tail is not as thin as like green iguanas, for oh, example. Okay. Now, where these are found are the Galapagos Islands and only the Galapagos Islands. Mm. So when you brought this to my attention, the species, I had asked, aren't they in other places? And you said, no, they're only in the Galapagos Islands. And I I had to think, why did I think that it was elsewhere? Right, yeah. And I'll touch on why I thought that later. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Um, I don't think I had ever really thought about where they were because I had only, like, I'd seen, like, videos of them and stuff like that, but I guess I never really thought about where they were. But, you know, the Galapagos Islands are, like, super cool. I guess I thought they were in... Pacific Islands in general. Oh, okay. Yeah, not like, just the Galapagos. But uh, for those unfamiliar with the Galapagos Islands, um, so those are in the Pacific Ocean, about a thousand kilometers west of Ecuador in South America. And if this is kind of ringing a bell, but you're not 100% sure why, these are the islands where Charles Darwin did a lot of his research that inspired a lot of his work in describing natural selection as a mechanism of evolution. Yep. And we've actually talked about other animals before that are found here, such as the blue-footed boobies and the vampire finch. Yeah. So the vampire finches, I, I got to talk a lot more about like Darwin's finches, right. which were an important part of like the development of Darwin's theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, go back and listen to that episode because I talked about the finches a lot, which yes. was really cool. And I'll talk some about Darwin a little bit later, too, because he had Ooh. some stuff to say about this lizard, too. I bet he did. <laughs> of course he did. Now, another question is, how did they get to to the Galapagos Islands? Because from a geological perspective, these islands were never part of a larger landmass. Interesting. How'd they get there? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So they were created by volcanic activity in the Pacific Ocean. So the idea is that these iguanas, or maybe their ancestor, got to the islands by rafting, basically. Rafting? Yeah. So just like debris... It could be trees, something floating across from mainland South America to these islands. Floating on a door while your lover <laughs> desperately clings to yeah. the edge. But there's totally room. <laughs> Why would they be doing that? Like, <laughs> just just vibing, like riding around, soaking up the sun, going I for a little joy ride. <laughs> it's the only one that makes sense, I suppose. True, yeah. Um, because they don't think there was human 
activity there prior to like European involvement. So they don't think it was brought over by indigenous populations or something. They just showed up. Yeah. Hear me out. What if they used to fly? (laughs) And then over millions of years, they lost flight. And now they don't fly anymore, so we wouldn't know. But what if they used to fly? I don't know. So this is believable for the iguana, but... Yeah, I wonder, okay, what about the giant tortoises? Oh, yeah, <laughs> which, which notably do not swim. I don't have an answer for that. Just something to put out there. And it's also thought that they and their terrestrial counterparts, because there are other iguanas on the Galapagos Islands that are terrestrial, so it's thought that they shared a common ancestor that existed on parts of the islands that are now underwater. Oh, I guess it would behoove you to learn to swim real quick, huh? (laughs) Sure. Um, And by the way, these islands are referred to as an archipelago. I love that word. That's Mm. a beautiful word. It is. They belong to the taxonomic family Iguanidae, as you can probably guess, that has the other iguanas, and also a kind of lizard, I don't think, maybe I have only heard in passing, called the Chuckwallas. That's a great name. Yes. I love that. (laughs) Chuckwalla. Yep. If I ever perform drag, that would be my name, Chuck Walla. <laughs> like we mentioned, they're related to the green iguanas. And you and I have seen those personally in Mexico, I believe. Those were green iguanas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Some of them were green iguanas, but there are also other species of iguanas there as well. I think there's like a Mexican black iguana. Oh, okay. There's like, there's multiple species there, but cool. we did see some green ones. Probably in the, f- the same family still. And also related to, like I mentioned, um, the Galapagos land iguana, which is that terrestrial counterpart I mentioned. Okay, so they have their own land iguana. Yes. This is our special one. (laughs) Now, we'll jump into our first category of effectiveness, which describes physical attributes that help them in their environment. So for effectiveness, I'm giving a score of 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. So I want to talk about their diet first, because this is kind of what drives their whole marine vibe why are they doing that it's because of what they eat they almost exclusively eat green algae okay yeah and it's kind of a a niche that they're filling because there's there's nothing else like competing with them on that kind of level (laughs) that's a good idea though yeah right if you're like hey nobody else is eating this one man's trash huh and this is algae that grows on rocks underwater in the ocean so this isn't like floating at the surface algae (laughs) you gotta work for it a little bit (laughs) Now, to do this, they have to be able to swim pretty well, right? So one thing that helps them swim is their tail. So I mentioned they have a tail that is different from other iguanas. Mm -hmm. So this one is flattened. Which way? Vertically or horizontally? Vertically vertically flattened. Okay. Like a fish's tail, not like a dolphin's tail. Correct. (laughs) So that's flattened for use for propulsion. So when you see them swimming, they're using this tail to like do a... An almost crocodilian type movement. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because they also pull in their, their four legs into the side of their body while they're doing this little wiggle. That is exactly, yeah, how like alligators and stuff swim. Yep. It's very cool looking to it see is. them do it. They almost look like a snake. Yep. They look kind of serpentine because <laughs> they kind of, you know, squeeze their legs in to become more like streamlined mm-hmm. and then they just kind of like wiggle back and forth yep. to swim. It's pretty cool. And that, that tail shape also reminds me of sea snakes, personally, when I see it in action. Mm, I could see that. When you were a little kid, whenever you like went to the pool or something like that, did you ever like pretend to be an animal swimming around in the water? Yeah, if you count Pokemon as animals. I did. Oh my gosh, I did, I did Pokemon too. But like sometimes I would kind of mix it up a little bit by pretending to be like an animal yeah. or something like that and like that sort of like crocodilian like squeeze your arms in and like wiggle around that's a fun one to do mm-hmm. very fun to swim like that 
if you're listening and you're a kid, next time you go to the pool, try to swim like a crocodile. It's really mm, fun. It is. Or like a marine iguana. Sorry. <laughs> Another thing they have that helps them with this are their claws. So the thing about swimming out into the ocean and then diving down to the to where the, the algae is growing on these rocks is, you know, that water is not stagnant. So the water is coming in in waves still because, you know, they're in the middle of the ocean. So right. that, that causes some pretty turbulent waters. So, you know, while they're swimming, that's fine. And then they swim down and get to where they're trying to eat. They use their claws to grab onto the rocks to stay put while they're eating. Oh, like an anchor. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. I guess you'd have to, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're just going to drift away from what you're trying to eat. Yeah. yeah. It is difficult trying to eat something that is stationary in an unstationary environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, they are ectotherms, also known as being cold-blooded. All reptiles are at least mostly ectothermic. Uh, There are some that are sometimes not in very specific conditions. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, but not these. Not these. Nothing special or interesting about that. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing. Um, Their food is found in cold water. Oh. So just to note on what cold-blooded or ectothermic means, they have to use their environment to change their body temperature. Right. So all living animals have to operate within a certain range of temperature. And it's surprisingly (laughs) narrow, too. Yeah, Yeah, especially on the scale of possible temperatures. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So for, you know, you and I, as mammals, we can regulate our own body temperature most of the time. It's kind of a default setting. Your body just does it. You don't have to worry about it. But with reptiles, you know, they have to use their environment. So to warm up, that usually means basking in sunlight. And then to cool down, it means getting into shade or getting into water. So what happens with these is because they're going in cold water to eat their food, they have to spend time in and out of the water kind of going back and forth. Mm. So when they get too cold, they have to come back out and bask in the sun. And then once they're all warmed up and ready to go, they can go back and get some more. Something that I think works in reptiles favor is that since their body isn't like passively maintaining temperature by like warming itself or cooling off that is a lot of energy that they're not using Uh so you'll see like reptiles that can get by on a much much lower food intake than you'd expect from a mammal of similar size because their body just isn't using as much fuel to maintain its temperature right so you'll see like snakes or like alligators or something that can go like I don't know, a month or so between meals because during that time they're mostly just vibing. They're not, uh, they don't have to be like heating themselves or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an energy efficient thing. Yep. It's metabolism difference there. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about metabolism relating to longevity. So when you look at the Galapagos tortoises, so they have two things going for them from there. So one, they're reptiles, but also they're slow moving. So mm. that me- that metabolism is really, really low. So they live for a very long time. Oh, super long. <laughs> I want to say I just read about one that was like well over 100 years oh, old. Yeah. And then they're like still reproductively active at that age. Right. They'll be like over 100 years old and still having babies. Mm-hmm. Wild. Their dark coloration helps with that sunbathing. Yep, so that helps them absorb more heat from sunlight. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because like dark colors tend to absorb more mm-hmm. sunlight. Yeah. I bet it also doesn't hurt with like blending into the rocks too. Yes, but they don't have a natural need to to blend in very very much. Oh. Yeah. Is there nothing out there eating them? <laughs> <laughs> There's not very many predators for them naturally on the Galapagos Sounds Islands. Sounds like they have it made. At least not terrestrial. Uh-oh. Because they do have sharks in that ocean. Mm. So This is the trade-off of living <laughs> a little bit in the ocean, is that the ocean's kind of scary. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
And they know it too, which I'll talk about in Ingenuity. So another thing they do, well, let let me bring you up to it first. So when they eat algae that is in the ocean and the ocean has salt water, that means they're taking in a lot of salt content into Mm. their bodies. True, true. So most, you know, animals that aren't fish have to you be careful with salt intake at that level because it can cause all sorts of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in humans, you know, you're not supposed to drink seawater because your body then has to use more water to expel that salt from your body. Right. <laughs> It'll just make you more thirsty, basically. Yeah, right. It does the opposite of what you want it to do. Right. Now, the way the marine iguanas get rid of this salt is they have glands in their nostrils that crystallizes the salt, oh, and then they snot blast it out of their nose. I love it. A <laughs> snot rocket. That's perfect. <laughs> so I mentioned BBC Earth as one of my sources, and that's a video of theirs that shows uh, like a group of iguanas in the early 2000s uh, just occasionally blasting these little <laughs> salt snots out of their noses. <laughs> And a lot of times it, they'll hit themselves and also the the other iguanas nearby. So a lot of them have like a layer of snot on top of them. Gross. <laughs> Hear me out. Yeah. This could be a great defensive tactic. <laughs> if they ever felt like threatened by a potential predator or something, they right. feel like intimidated or something, you just... <laughs> like how the the horned lizard fires blood out of its eyes when it feels intimidated. It yeah, could be like that. It could, but it's they just don't. Not. <laughs> and then finally, they have what's known as a dive reflex. Um, humans have this too, uh, to where it slows your heartbeat. And in the iguanas, it slows down by 60% when they're diving underwater. Oh. So this is because of a, um, receptors that are triggered when it's submerged underwater. Uh, oh really? Yeah, humans have this too. It's a very ancient, I guess, reflex <laughs> I mean, among animals. It must be so ancient that it goes all the way back to like water times, <laughs> yeah. like the the days when we were submerged. <laughs> we all came from the ocean. Mm-hmm. Friend of the podcast and former guest Gina Zwicky, who is since married and now goes by Gina Lloyd. I know that Gina had recently spent some time in the Galapagos Islands Mm -hmm. and, you know, took a lot of really gorgeous pictures of marine iguanas that I've been really enjoying watching as she's been posting them. And, you know, I I reached out to her and asked her, you know, about any interesting little tidbits she could give us about marine iguanas that she may have observed or learned about on her trip. And she did mention the salt sneezes as something particularly charming about them. (laughs) It's something. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm sort of desensitized to snot now because now having gone through two babies and with Finley, who I got to say, I have to call out Finley. He is the snottiest, boogeriest baby (laughs) I've ever interacted with in my life. Like in all of the pictures of him, he is just like, he's constantly got boogers and drool and he's just, he's very boogery. And so I feel like because he's been such a boogery baby, I feel like I've just really lost all sense of like repulsion. Well, he's also not launching it usually. Usually. (laughs) But not, it's not unheard of. I've seen it happen. Um, so you mentioned your your friend visited the Galapagos Islands, mm-hmm. and something I looked into was the human presence on the, the islands today. Yeah, I guess in my mind I thought they were, you know, just I guess I thought people weren't living there; it was just nature of wildlife. Right, it's not the case. Sure, uh, they have I think two airports, like small airports. 
there's I think on the magnitude of tens of thousands of people living there now today. Wow. So there are parts that are um, you know where people aren't allowed to be to live or go and very tightly controlled. But that that's an idea of the human presence there. So there are people that live there. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't the the government of Ecuador keeps a pretty close like watch on the preservation of the islands? Yes, especially in recent decades. So that's another good point. Um, the the those islands are part of Ecuador, mm-hmm. the g- government wise. Right. But yeah, uh, you know the history and also you know the politics of those islands are pretty interesting. If there are any listeners that want to look into that, mm-hmm. uh, even with some of the world wars. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Moving on to our second category of ingenuity. So these are things that are smart, things that they're doing. Uh, that could be methods, tool use, that kind of thing. I'm giving a 6 out of 10. Couldn't find a lot here. They lay eggs like reptiles, most reptiles do. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are like the leathery eggs. Yeah, they're soft. Mm-hmm. Like lizard eggs. Um, I, I found quite a few lizard eggs in my time. Yeah. And they're a little bit hard to see because they're usually like covered in dirt and stuff. Sure. But... If you're thinking of a bird egg, like a chicken's egg or something like that, it's not like that right. at all. It's yeah. like very soft and very collapsible. Mm-hmm. So it's not as fragile as a chicken's egg. Right. They bury their eggs in sand or volcanic ash and usually hatching without adult supervision. This is mom just peace out. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't like worry about well, they, their... They stick around for a little while after they've been laid. But okay. by the time that the eggs are hatching, which are like months later... Yeah, they're on their own. That's funny. They're like, yeah, you're probably <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, one video was, I don't even remember. Was, was that a marine iguanas in that video of babies racing across yes. the beach and snakes yes. chasing them and such? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> that was in Planet Earth 2. Okay. And it was, I want to say it won an Emmy. Like that episode <laughs> won an Emmy because of that scene. Right. It is the most gripping scene I've ever seen on television. Like it's incredible. It's a baby marine iguana that hatches and it has to get to the water mm-hmm. from its nest, which is a little bit inland. But in order to get to the water, it has to cross through this rocky like beach area that is covered in snakes and the snakes are just waiting to catch this baby iguana (laughs) and the baby iguana has to just book it Uh and the snakes are like as soon as the baby iguana starts running the snakes just suddenly start to you know chase after it and it's really intense and there's all this intense music going on and i think there's a point where like the snakes grab the iguana and it looks like you're like oh he didn't make it and the iguana kind of goes down for a second and then comes back up and keeps (laughs) running you're like yeah (laughs) cheering for the little guy and he's running through and then it's just it's cinematic it is so beautiful it's awesome it's an incredible sequence now darwin wrote about an interesting habit that he observed now, oh boy now while this is charles darwin we're talking about this is still just the experience of one person so i don't know if this is common or not okay <laughs> <laughs> he noticed that if you tried to chase them or corner them in some way now charles <laughs> <laughs> When when you you know go after them, they won't escape into water. Okay, they won't go into water to escape you. Seems like that's what you should do. But right? all right, like even if it's at like a, a cliff that they could easily dive off of into the water. Yeah, they won't do it. Okay, what do they do? <laughs> they just you could just walk up and pick them up. <laughs> Charles, <laughs> you 
leave these lizards alone. What are you doing? It gets worse. It gets worse. So you know what his next thought was? Oh, no. What happens if I pick him up and throw him into the water? Oh, my God. Stop. <laughs> He's out here harassing the wildlife. Oh, my God. <laughs> This is so unethical. So what he observed, <laughs> <laughs> what he observed was, you know, the iguana might like hang out in the water for a bit until it thinks danger has passed, and then okay. it will exit the water. Okay. And then do it over again. <laughs> <laughs> so this man, <laughs> this human man, he sees these giant lizards and he's like i know exactly what i'm gonna do <laughs> item number one on the agenda i'm gonna chase him <laughs> well, so he chases it corners it and this lizard's just looking at him like i guess this is it for me <laughs> i guess my days are over he gets it he catches the lizard picks it up and is like i didn't think i'd get this far <laughs> he's like i didn't have a plan for this i don't know what to do next yeet <laughs> 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 and then it was like, well, that was pretty neat. Let me try that a few more times for science. It's got to be a repeatable procedure. <laughs> so the thought is, because they don't have very many terrestrial predators, especially when they're fully grown, is that they recognize they have more threat of being eaten mm. in the water than they do on land. That, oh, true. Because <laughs> they're like, I don't know what you're all about, but, but you I'm... appear to not be a shark. Exactly. So... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take my chances. <laughs> so now keep, keep in mind, this was in the 1830s that this <laughs> occurred. So, you know, there weren't as many people on the, the islands at that point. So not only was this the observation of one person at one point in time, you know, this was you know almost 200 years ago. So mm -hmm. I don't know if the iguanas have learned since then <laughs> because of how many more humans there are. Yeah. But. Well, you know, uh, Gina mentioned that the marine iguanas on the islands are just everywhere uh -huh. and that you can just walk right up to them and like take their pictures. And she described them as being like pigeons okay. on the island, that they're just very chill with stuff like that. You know what? I've heard that same sort of dynamic with penguins in Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. That since they don't have any terrestrial predators, they do not register humans as a threat. Right. So they're just like, oh, what are you doing over here? And they just <laughs> waddle up to what you're doing. Come check you out. Yeah, yeah. It's not their fault. Yeah, because this this is mirroring New Zealand a lot, right? When we were talking about the Kiwi. Right, true, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But Charles, <laughs> don't do that. Come on, man. What are you doing? <laughs> That's so rude. It's that's not even the worst of it, unfortunately. Oh no. And now we're getting into aesthetics. Okay, thank you. Very good. So this is how cute they look, how beautiful they are, that kind of thing. Very good. I'm giving a seven out of ten. Which that's a little lower than I expected from you. No, it's actually higher than I think. <laughs> that than the uh what the average would probably be. That's true. But but I know that you like reptiles. So like I know that you like that sort of yeah. look. So like I would have expected you to go higher. Slightly uncanny valley territory a little bit. Oh, because of the shortness of the nose? And the lips. Yeah. Oh, they do have like <laughs> weirdly thick lips, don't yeah. they? I think whenever you see a, a fantasy, sci-fi, whatever, do a lizard man thing, mm. that's the design they go for. I see it. I definitely <laughs> see it. It's very Argonian. Or um, Trandoshan from Star Wars. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It looks like prosthetics that they would apply in like one of the old Star Trek series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely is looking like that a little bit. But I believe that the thickness of the lips 
is intentional that it's to help them like munch on that algae off of the rocks and stuff so that they can like eat algae off of the rocks without damaging their mouth it would make sense i didn't come across it but that, that would make sense yeah now do you know who particularly was not a fan of them aesthetically was it charles darwin <laughs> it was charles darwin <laughs> Which I don't know if that's related to his choice of testing methods. My but. opinion of Charles Darwin <laughs> is plummeting. <laughs> I am developing so much beef with Charles Darwin. So this is from his book uh, that chronicles his voyage around the world, including his visit to the Galapagos Islands. Sure. And that, that book's titled The Voyage of the Beagle. Referring to the ship's name, the I didn't. Beagle. I assumed I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think he was running around with a, an annoying dog. <laughs> uh, so that was first published in 1839. At the time, it was called Journal and Remarks. So that voyage, by the way, uh, started in 1831 and lasted almost five years. Mm. Now, only five weeks of that voyage was in the Galapagos, um, whereas maybe a quarter of what he wrote was about the Galapagos. Oh. <laughs> 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 Y'all aren't gonna believe this. <laughs> um, so he's yeah he spent those five weeks in 1835 in the Galapagos. Although in his defense, if I spent five weeks in the Galapagos, that would be everything I ever talked about for the rest of my life. <laughs> I would never talk about anything else. Right. So he wrote about the marine iguana. Oh boy! It is a hideous looking creature of oh. a dirty black color, stupid and oh. sluggish in its movements. No. <laughs> What? Well, yeah, because you just picked it up and threw it off a cliff, Charles. Stupid lizard. <laughs> I, I'm imagining him picking up a lizard, throwing it off the cliff into the water, and then just like jotting down in his notebook, like, stupid. <laughs> Next. That's so mean. He would also describe them as hideous reptiles and having apparent stupidity. Oh, my God. That's awful. <laughs> Friendship with Charles Darwin ended. <laughs> I can't stand this man. This is ridiculous. More like on the origins of bad takes. <laughs> this is, this is a, a bad take, my guy. <laughs> so that's what I got for aesthetic. Uh, but you don't agree with no, this. No, no. I think they're neat. Generally. They are. Yeah, I like them. Now, their conservation status is vulnerable, declining as of a 2019 assessment done by the IUCN. Oh, that's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. They are severely impacted by El Nino patterns. Oh. So the algae they eat is highly dependent on water conditions. Mm. So an El Nino southern oscillation event causes low salinity and nutrient-poor conditions for affected areas. By the way, people who aren't familiar with El Nino this is like a, a storm system, right? It's more like a weather pattern, kind of that controls the currents of water in the ocean. This kind of event brings in more rain than is normal, because really the Galapagos Islands is more more of a desert climate. Oh, sure. Um, without much fresh water there. Um, so when these events happen, it brings in way, way more fresh water into the area, lowering the salinity of water, increasing the temperature of water. So what happens is, you know, there's a die-off of the kind of algae that they eat and then a resurgence of red algae that they don't eat. Oh, red yeah. algae's rough. Yeah. We we have our own experiences with red algae yes. here on our coast. So when those happen, you know, we, we see high mortality rates for... Everything that lives around in there. Yeah. It's brutal. Yep. That sucks. 
Uh, they also struggle with introduced predators and competition, although it's not really things that compete with them, but other native species. So, that, for example, rats, feral cats, dogs, sure. that kind of thing. Now, my final piece of information. Let's hear it. <laughs> in the media. Oh, I knew we were getting to it. <laughs> I knew it was going to be in there somewhere. In 1998. Surely this is not the first instance. Well, this is the one near and dear to me. Okay. The movie Godzilla came out. This is the first totally Hollywood-made Godzilla, Mm. whereas most other Godzilla movies were made in Japan, right? Mm, Sure. Um, Now, this is the 1998 film starring Matthew Broderick. Oh, my God. That was him? (laughs) Yes, yes, it was. That's actually, it's funny because most people will, when you say Matthew Broderick, they usually think of um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Right, yeah. That's not what I think of. No. Because when I grew up, I think of Godzilla and Mm. Inspector Gadget. (laughs) (laughs) You've aged yourself. Very specifically. (laughs) Neither of which were considered box office successes. Oh, no. Far from it. Well, that's funny because I think of the producers. Oh, yeah, that's true. And also the Lion King. Oh, yeah, he played Simba. I think he was also in a Civil War movie. I forget what it was called. I wouldn't know. But, so this one was important to me. (laughs) I think because I have... uh, I enjoyed the movie more than the average person did. Okay. Because I was a child at the time. Of course. <laughs> was this appropriate for children? I mean... When I think of, like, monster movies, I don't think of them being as, like, little kids. I stuff. would have been six or seven at the time. Right, which is what I'm saying. PG-13 movie. You should not so, have been watching this movie. <laughs> um, just uh, be cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to rat on you. <laughs> Um, so where this where this movie was a little different from other Godzilla movies was they 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 played with the origin story a little bit. Oh, okay. So in this movie, it was marine iguana eggs that were subject to mutation from nuclear bomb testing. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is the most sci-fi thing. <laughs> now you'd be wondering. Now they didn't test nuclear weapons on the Galapagos Islands. Certainly didn't. No, they did not. There's some other islands in the Pacific. Okay. Um, now, this is where it comes into what I said earlier. Like, I thought marine iguanas were in other islands. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> That's because in this movie I saw as a young child, oh. <laughs> they said, here's this island with marine iguanas, mutation, got Godzilla. They no. did not expand on that any further? So, I, I guess... Did they explain why this island had marine iguanas? No. Okay. <laughs> Love it. So, this was like, I guess for... Gosh, over 20 years ago now? Mm-hmm. That, that, that was just in my mind that, oh, gl- marine iguanas must live in lots of places. It's all over the place. But they do not. But then that's a piece of information that would have never been challenged to you, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, why would you ever need to know that? Until now. Until now. Yeah. Until this very day. We're busting myths here on Just the Two of Us. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was a movie that didn't do too great in the box offices. <laughs> I thought it was neat because of my age at the time. And I think... Others of that age group share the same opinions. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was never, uh, well, let's see, 1998, I would have only been three when that came out. So yeah. obviously I didn't really have my finger on the pulse of pop culture uh, at the time. Yeah. But I, I never, you know, was friends with enough little boys that would give me a sort of a barometer on how popular that movie was. <laughs> So I think where I fell in with that timeline not only you know gave me a, a higher opinion of the Godzilla movie, but mm. also maybe a higher opinion of marine iguanas in general. Oh, 
because some of the design of that Godzilla was based off of it. it kind of mostly just the, the snout. That, that's about it. And the way he sw- the, the way she swims. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, she's a girl. He, he, oh, shoot. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> For a movie that came out over, what, 20-something years ago? <laughs> but they, uh, the, the Godzilla in that movie does the, the crocodilian swim underwater oh, and has cool. the long tail and such. Oh, this is a classic example of a kaiju. Yes. For people unfamiliar, kaijus are giant monsters. <laughs> it's a very specific genre of like monster movie, basically, where like mm-hmm. some sort of giant monster is usually destroying a city. Godzilla is one. King Kong is another kaiju. Mothra. Yeah. Things yep. like that. So this was the only Godzilla movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Did this one also take place in Tokyo? No, I think it was New York. Or... How does it get there? Tokyo makes sense for it to be in the Pacific Islands. Oh, wait, was it? It was something New York-esque. Sure. But I think it was New York. Okay. I mean, <laughs> that would be weird for it to get all the way over there because with Tokyo, it's like at least... I could be... I- I'm going off memory from over 20 years ago. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> Godzilla, you know, originally being from Japanese cinema, was usually depicted destroying Tokyo. Well, plus also if it originated from a Pacific island. It would be line of sight. I don't know. Uh, You didn't rewatch that movie just for this podcast? (laughs) Nope. It underperformed, uh, which canceled planned sequels. But they did do an animated spinoff series, which I had totally (laughs) forgotten until I saw that. (laughs) Did you watch the animated series? I did. I did. Oh, did you like it? did. Aww. Yeah. They made it just for you, Christian. (laughs) Clearly, because nobody else watched it. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Uh, There was like a King Kong versus Godzilla movie a couple years ago, wasn't there? I don't know. I saw the the King Kong that came out in the late 2000s. I did too. Just because of Peter Jackson's involvement with it, having come off of Lord of the Rings not too much before that. Right, yeah. So... I I saw it too. It was really scary, though. Was Jack Black in it? Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah. All right, that's been our trip to the movies. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, babe. That yeah. was uh, that was awesome. I don't know how I'm going to follow it up. <laughs> Great animal. Let's uh, hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Which animal has the most bones? Why isn't Pluto a planet? Why are bees electrically charged? Let's find out together on our show, Let's Learn Everything, where we learn anything and everything interesting. My name's Caroline, and I studied biodiversity and conservation. My name's Tom, and I studied computer science and cognitive... Did you? (laughs) (laughs) And my name's Ella, and I studied stem cells and regenerative medicine. On our show, we do as much research as you would for a class, but we don't get in trouble for making each other laugh. Subscribe to Let's Learn Everything every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. Are you ready to binge watch something old? The Greatest Generation is a podcast about Star Trek by a couple of hosts a little bit embarrassed to even have a Star Trek podcast. Hosted by me, Ben Harrison. And me, Adam Pranica. We get into the critical, the technical, the science fictional aspects of the show we love while roasting it and each other at the same time. We've completed an entire series about Star Trek The Next Generation and another one about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we've just begun Star Trek Voyager, so now is a great time to start watching a new Star Trek series with us. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts and become a friend of DeSoto today. 
All right. Enough about exploring my developmental past. <laughs> what do you bring us this week, Ellen? This week, I am talking about the Kalugo. Okay. Kalugos belong to an order called Dermoptera. Ooh. And if you take that order name apart, Dermo means skin, mm-hmm. and Terra, P-T-E-R-A, means, do you know this one? As in Great. Pterodactyl, <laughs> as in Chiroptera, which is the bats. Flight. Wing. Ah. Yeah. So Dermoptera means skin wing, which is fun. <laughs> 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 this species was submitted by Kate Morton. Thank you, Kate. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, uh, a BBC article that was titled Langkawi, the curious island of the strange Kalugos, and that was by Thomas Bird in February of 2021. And then a couple other little sources that I'll cite as they come up. If you're not familiar with the Kalugo, which I would imagine if you don't live in the place where these are from, you probably haven't heard of them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are pretty small. They're only about two to five pounds, um, which is one to two kilograms. Only about a foot long, 33 centimeters, but then plus another about 10 inches of tail. So they've got a nice long tail, but they're not huge. That is about the size of half of a chicken, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was lost prior. <laughs> I should, before we go any further, describe to you what a kaluga looks like, because most people probably have no clue what I'm talking about. It is a small mammal. Mm. It's a furry little critter. They have kind of a, not a super long snout, but it is a narrow snout. They have big eyes that sort of bulge out. They have very, very long, thin limbs, but those limbs and also their long tail are all connected by a loose, flappy membrane of skin. Mm -hmm. And the skin is also like covered in fur. Um, so they're not, they don't look exactly like a bat's wing, but if you look up closely to the membrane, it has sort of a similar sort of like extra skin appearance. Yeah, yeah. Um, they look kind of like other forest gliders, like a sugar glider or a flying squirrel, but more similar to primates than those two. So there's two species of mm-hmm. Kalugo. There is the Sunda Kalugo, which is found in Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Borneo. And then there's the Philippine Kalugo, which you'll never guess where they're found. <laughs> the Philippines. Yeah, yeah. So, And I mentioned that they are the order Dermoptera. The two species of Kalugo are the only living members of the entire order. Hmm. Yeah, which order is a very high up classification of animals. So like carnivora is an order which contains like cats and bears and, you know, mustelids and stuff like that. Right. So it's a pretty high up thing. So these are very sort of taxonomically unique. They don't have a lot of close cousins. So Kalugos are sometimes referred to as flying lemurs. But okay. I am avoiding using this name because they're not lemurs and they also don't fly. <laughs> so it's it's 0 for 2 on the flying lemur name. Neither apply. Uh, they do glide, which is an important distinction because flying implies that you're generating your own lift, mm-hmm, right? You're mm-hmm. like flapping your wings to rise yes. in the air. This was uh, famously debated in Toy Story. Oh, really? (laughs) I was falling with style. Is that what it is? (laughs) Yeah, just like that. Um, So birds fly. 
bats can fly, mm-hmm. but these do not. Bats are actually the only mammal that actually flies. Uh, these glide, which is uh, a little bit more in line with flying squirrels and sugar gliders, mm-hmm. which can only go down. So their closest relatives are primates. So they split off from the primate family before the lemurs and the lorises did. So it's interesting because they kind of look about halfway between a primate and like a rodent, Mm -hmm. which, you know, those things are kind of in the same clade. So colugos are really evolutionarily interesting because they're kind of that transitional, like almost like a missing link between primates and things like rodents and rabbits and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of a bridge between them, which is really neat. Yeah. They're not lemurs, even though sometimes they're called lemurs. So just to get into their uh, ratings for effectiveness, I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they are extremely good at gliding. They're the most efficient mammal glider. Hmm. Um, out of the ones that glide, they're the best at it. So they move between treetops by gliding which they're able to do because of their built-in skin parachute yes so this skin runs all the way from their shoulder blades attaches at their wrists down again at their ankles and then theirs actually attaches at the tip of their tail so Hmm. kind of like a kite you know we'll have like we'll attach at the back so it makes a sort of diamond shape. Okay. Theirs is more like a pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So they make like this pentagon shape when they fly. And by the way, the name of that like membrane of skin that lets them glide, it's yeah. called a patagium. 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 What an interesting word. Isn't it? Yeah. And you that's actually what they call the membrane on other gliding mammals like sugar gliders and stuff. Okay. Um, so it's just excess skin, kind of like the webbing of a bat's wings. And because their patagium covers so much of their body and they get so much surface area from it, they can glide for up to uh, 100 meters or more, which wow. is 328 feet. So when they're gliding, they can actually like reach equilibrium so that they're not like slowing down at all while hmm. they're gliding. Yeah. And then they can like break themselves while they're gliding. Otherwise, they'll just keep going, <laughs> which is really, really cool. Um, But since I was kind of comparing them to the other mammal gliders, just to give a quick rundown of like the other mammals that have this sort of strategy. Um, So the sugar glider is a small marsupial that is native to uh, northeastern Australia. Okay. They're marsupials, which, as we know, are super, super distantly related to the non-marsupial mammals. Mm Mm-hmm. But then the flying squirrels, which also have the same sort of general anatomy, are rodents. And there's like about 50 different species of flying squirrels, and they're like all over the world. But the main takeaway from this is that all three of these animals are not even not even a little bit related to each other, but they all have a very, very similar body structure with like the same gliding mechanism developed independently of each other. Hmm. Convergent evolution, which is our favorite (laughs) thing in the world that happens when animals that are not related to each other develop similar traits for similar reasons. Yes. Love to see convergent evolution, baby. (laughs) So then once they glide between tree to tree, they have these long, like, thin hook-shaped claws that let them grip onto tree branches or tree trunks or stuff like that. One problem is that they don't have thumbs, though. Uh, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> so they can really only, like, grip on with their claws. 
I'm imagining a, a hugging type grab. It is, it is a hug. Okay. It is a hug, exactly. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, so their most comfortable position is actually hanging upside down in like a, like a hammock style. Oh. So like they hang below the tree branch, not like a bat, but, right, but more like... like fours. Yes. So they've got arms and legs around the tree branch and they're just kind of dangling Dude. down beneath it. Do their babies sit in them they like him? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> I've got this animal's number. <laughs> You've got it all figured out. There's there's one more thing about about that though that okay. I don't think you're gonna figure out before I say right. it. Um <laughs> that I'll get to in just a minute. But I think that this kind of like posture of like hanging underneath the branch i think it's really helpful for them because gravity basically gets the excess skin out of the way for them you know because like their skin is so baggy and flappy that when they're upright it just like falls around it's like when you're trying to like walk around with a blanket wrapped around you (laughs) you know like it's like getting in your way and it's hard to walk around and stuff like it's just too much or like if you've ever seen like a bulldog or a basset hound like trip over its own <laughs> ears and folds and stuff, it's kind of like that. So oh. I imagine it's probably pretty comfy for the Kaluga to be upside down and it's like all the baggy skin is just like falling behind it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I That's speculation on my part. They are nocturnal and they have large eyes for seeing very well. So and Okay, so I mentioned this BBC article. It included this interview with uh, zoologists that are working with Kalugos. And they made the most casual passing mention that Kalugos lick their eyeballs to clean them like geckos do. Man. And, but I have looked high and low for some sort of like confirmation of that or like a diagram of their eyes, <laughs> like more information about their eyelids and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. could not find anything else about it. Huh. And it was just like briefly touched on, like as a casual aside in this article. And that's all I can find about it. So huh. I don't, if anybody out there knows more about the eyeball licking, please get in touch because that's intriguing to me yeah. and i would love to know if that's a thing geckos do this because right. they don't have eyelids uh-huh. so they have to lick their eyelid to clean it so right. if this is a thing kalugos are doing i would love to know about it they didn't have any skin to spare like after their <laughs> <laughs> not enough left over to make eyelids they had to actually reallocate from the eyelids <laughs> like move it all into the skin flap <laughs> They do have one really weird trait that they share with lemurs, actually. Okay. It's an interesting like thing they have in common with lemurs, and that is tooth combs. Lemurs, and also colugos, their lower incisors, which are the teeth in the very, very front of the mouth, they're shaped like the tines of a comb. Hmm. So each tooth, each individual tooth has these long, skinny tines in it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so that's really useful for grooming their fur. So they, they kind of like pull the fur between the tines of their teeth. It's a little gross, but I mean, it's it, it helps them keep their fur clean. I suppose. Yeah. So it probably helps get a lot of bugs out of there. Ooh. I'm just saying. It's just the thought of hair running through the gaps of my teeth. Yes, it's not great, is it? Has my my skin crawling. Well, here's the thing. You get your hair cleaned and you floss at the same time. I mean, nine out of ten dentists. (laughs) Nine out of ten dentists uh, recommend (laughs) tooth combs. So I did give them some slight deductions. One of them is for the no thumbs thing. 
another one is that when they do climb vertically, they have to like hop. So they have to do like all of their like both arms and then both legs behind them. It seems exhausting. Yeah. It seems like the least efficient possible way to do that, which is super counterintuitive for an animal that lives in the treetops and you're going to have to be up there all the time. (laughs) You'd think you would need to be better at that. But that would that would make me be very cautious about ever gliding because, you know, like, oh, the gliding would be fun and cool, but I'm going to have to do all this over again. <laughs> I mean, evidently, they seem to be pretty good at it. You know, they have great grip strength. So it's not like I don't think there's like a huge risk of them like losing their grip and falling. Mm-hmm. It just seems very energetically costly. It couldn't be me, basically. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't do it jumping up these trees it doesn't look fun at all they're also absolutely pitiful on the ground yeah they're way they're even worse on the ground so once they're on the ground they have to lunge forward with like all of their limbs simultaneously to move around because they've essentially got a giant like blanket tied to their feet right it's not a fun time for them so i think they just put all their eggs in the gliding basket which is like they they don't have to do that all the time. Like that's how they get to different trees to like find new food and you know get to each other to like mate and stuff like that. So like it's important that they're able to glide and stuff, but like you got to do other stuff too. I think that movement from gliding into flying just worsens those problems too. Mm-hmm. Cuz bats have similar problems with that. Right, so like they have to drop out of a tree, right? Well, not drop. They're kind of like jumping out of a tree mm. basically. You know, they can't just, like, fall down from the air. They they jump out of a tree and and glide, but, you know, they can't generate lift from wherever they are. Uh, Their main predator is the Philippine eagle, which we've talked about before a while back. Uh, The Philippine eagle's diet can be up to 90% calugos. (laughs) (laughs) So these things are just, like, popcorn for them. They're just... It's like like a fighter jet coming in to to get a kite. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, this poor thing is just, yeah, they're just right there, you know, because they're other than gliding when they're like on the tree or on the ground, they're really slow. So the eagle is really good at just swiping them right up. Uh, Moving on to ingenuity for the Kaluga, I give them a seven out of 10. Okay. So not a lot is known about Kaluga behavior. Um, They're nocturnal and kind of difficult to observe in the wild because they do have pretty good camouflage Mm -hmm. and stay pretty, you know, still during the day. And there's also, this, this surprised me, there are no captive kalugos okay no zoo has ever successfully reared kalugos i was gonna say is that for lack of trying or i mean it seems like they've tried and they just do not do well at all in zoo environments um that being said they're fairly common in their native ranges so like for for example the singapore zoo the zoo like the grounds have a lot of just like trees and Mm. natural spaces on the zoo grounds Mm -hmm. so wild kalugos just like hang out there oh yeah (laughs) so a lot of research that's done on kalugos is done on wild kalugos that just show up at the singapore zoo (laughs) so they'll do the research at the zoo but the kalugos don't belong to the zoo they're not part of an exhibit they just like show up (laughs) and they're like well while you're here let me just tag you real quick and see what's they were like i saw like an article about like the the only time a kalugo being born has ever been like captured in photographs was when one gave birth at the singapore zoo just showed up it was a wild one so 
kind of interesting that like they just it's like they voluntarily become a zoo exhibit huh which is kind of funny it's like the the armadillos we'll see occasionally at our zoo yeah we see all sorts of interesting little birds that uh sometimes tragically wander into zoo exhibits at our (laughs) zoo sometimes to uh tragic ends for that animal yeah (laughs) rest in peace to that one bird we saw fly into the squirrel monkey exhibit valuable enrichment yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you touched on this briefly, that the mother does hold her baby on her tummy. So Yay. she kind of turns herself into a little little swaddle for the baby. Love that. Um, and also the baby is really good at clinging to her so that she can fly. Mm. And the baby's clinging onto the bottom. Man, that's so cool. It is really, really cool, actually. <laughs> so like, you, there are a lot of really cool pictures out there of Kalugos gliding around with the little baby stuck onto the bottom. It's pretty neat. Uh, but another thing about that is that when the mother is like clinging to the side of the tree, which you'd think like if she's got her belly up against the tree, where's the baby going to go? Yeah. The baby goes on her back. Uh-huh. And I mentioned that the skin membrane, the patagium, is connected at the tip of the tail. She can raise her tail, which folds the skin membrane up and becomes like a little backpack. Oh. And she carries the baby in her little backpack. <laughs> it's so cute. It's so really, like it. It's adorable. So she's got a I was like, I have one of these for Finley. Like the little <laughs> harness that yes. I just put them on my back and run around with them all day. That's basically what she's doing. They also, they do make these really loud vocalizations, which is a lot of times how you even know there's one around that they just make these various little screeching and whistling sounds and stuff. But in addition to the ones that we can hear, recent research has shown that they also communicate with each other using ultrasound calls. Mm. So these are sounds that are so high pitched that human ears can't hear them. It's a very stealthy sound. It's kind of similar to what bats use to echolocate. But the thing is, Kalugos mostly eat leaves. They're not hunting anything. Oh, So there's no reason they would need to use that to find bugs or anything like that. So it's thought that they might be sending alarm calls to each other. Hmm. Like they might be alerting each other to like the presence of danger or something like that. The jury's kind of still out as to why they're communicating with each other with ultrasound. And that information I got from a paper that was titled Ultrasound Use by Sunda Kalugos offers new insights into the communication of these cryptic mammals. And that was by Priscilla Miard et al. in Bioacoustics in January of 2018. It's a very interesting paper. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last little thing I have for Kalugos is that while they're gliding through the air, Kalugos and also other gliding mammals, they know how to adjust their posture in the air to kind of manipulate their speed uh, and kind of hit the brakes, essentially. Hmm. So they can kind of lean back a little bit. It's called like pitching upward. So they can lean back and catch more drag with their parachute, basically, so that they can slow down before landing so that they're not injured by like smacking into the tree, right? Right. If you're coming in hot, you're coming in like maximum velocity and then you just slam into the tree, you're going to get hurt. (laughs) But they, they can kind of like catch the air to slow themselves down when they're coming in for a landing so that they can make a softer landing. Very good. Um, and studies on flying squirrels have suggested that the, this hasn't been done on Kalugos, but there's some similar behavior there. So you can probably reasonably assume that some of this would apply to Kalugos too. But flying squirrels even avoid making short glides because if your glide is too short, you're not going to have time to adjust your posture and slow down. So a short glide 
you're going to be coming in hot. There's nothing you can do about it if you don't have time to break. Mm-hmm. So they'll purposefully avoid making short glides oh. so that they can actually slow down and not make a glide that's going to hurt them. And that comes from a paper called Takeoff and Landing Kinetics of a Free-Ranging Gliding Mammal, the Malayan Kalugo, Galeopterus variegatus. And that was by Greg Burns et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences in May of 2008. Cool. Yeah. And to wrap up for the Kalugo with aesthetics, I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. They're really cute. They have some weird angles, though. So <laughs> I mentioned that they have big eyes yeah. and if you look at them from dead center like right in the front their eyes kind of point away from each other <laughs> just like our dog just like our dog puppy <laughs> and you'd think that because our dog's face looks like that i would find it more endearing but i don't um, <laughs> it, it's it they can look very bizarre from certain angles they also have that pointy nose mm-hmm. um that can look a little rat-like almost in uh... certain I was imagining something like uh, a possum. They do look not like our opossums, right. but more like the Australian possums. I I would say they look kind of like that. Okay. But yeah, they it, it can be kind of iffy. I do think they look super cute when they're in like hammock mode. Yeah, yeah. And when they're clinging onto a tree, that's really, really cute. When they're gliding through the air, it's a little weird <laughs> because they do have just like stretched out skin looks a little bit like that like character in Doctor Who that's like just stretched out skin on like a slab. You don't you don't know what I'm talking about. Not, so this sounds really not weird. At all. <laughs> you could be making this up for all of us. <laughs> but people listening who've watched Doctor Who uh, know what I'm talking about. So I actually do kind of like the floppy skin, you know, like when they're just hanging out. It looks like like a baggy sweater or something, you know? Like I oh. like that. It looks very comfy. It looks cozy. Like, I don't know. I think it's cute. They're also kind of fluffy. So, like, I like that. I think, it, I think they're cute. Yeah. They're, they're not perfect. I have some notes. But, <laughs> but it's pretty cute. It's a cute little guy. And finally, um, for conservation, the IUCN lists both species as least concern. Oh. But their populations are declining. Mm-hmm. Both species of Kalugo are threatened by deforestation. So they obviously rely really heavily on forests full of tall trees so that they can climb up to the top of the tree and then glide down. Like they, they literally can't even get around without a tall tree. Mm, and Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're worthless with no, uh, with no, what do you call Skyscraper. them? Skyscraper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, they, they need tall trees around even just to to move basically mm-hmm. uh, but they're also full of ores they eat leaves and flowers and stuff so like they need a healthy forest so that they can have enough food to eat so deforestation is a big threat to them as a lot of animals that we talk about on the show are you know habitat maintenance and protection is always the most important thing yep. so now you know about a cool animal that you may not have known about before i certainly didn't I only heard of this animal for the first time maybe like a year or two ago. Hmm. And um, yeah, they're fun little guys. I think they're really cute. And that's the Kalugo. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you, darling listener, for hanging out with us today. It's been a lot of fun. If you liked what you heard, we would love it if you left us a good review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or something like that. Um, That would be really nice. I read all of the reviews, so please say nice things about us.
If you want to hang out with us online, we have a Facebook group. We've got Twitter. We've got a really fun Discord server that everyone is super nice on. Um, I'm on Instagram. So, you know, uh, all links to everything will be in the episode description below. We want to thank Maximum Fun for having us on the network with the other awesome shows on there, like Comfort Creatures, which is kind of a newer newer show on Maximum mm-hmm. Fun that's about pets. So if you like our show, you probably like animals and would probably enjoy that one. So go yeah. check that one out. Um, and thank you to Louis Zong for making our amazing theme music that I'm still hyped about. Yeah, we all we get questions about it too from time to time. I know. Oh, someone recently said that they were trying to figure out what the animal sounds are in the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is a desert rain frog. The second one is a coquille. And the third one is a tiger. So that's your answer key to our theme music. <laughs> and that's all for this week. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.